Hi, friends. I'm Katie. And I'm Olivia. And we are Podcast by Proxy, Canadian True Crime. Welcome. in person together we are together we haven't recorded together in a really long time probably over a year yeah because we used to do it a little bit more frequently but it's been a while we're just we've been busy yeah we live a little bit closer together now like 15 minutes closer hey i'll take what i can get yeah i came to visit katie because it's my birthday this week and she moved into a new place so I needed to come visit. So here we are. Birthday girl. Yeah, and we have a fun case. Well, not fun, but we have a big case today. Um, and I think we're going to stretch it over to two parts, though part two might be shorter. Um, but we're going to give you some homework at the end of the episode. So, And for everyone who says that I talk over Olivia, this will be a great test again. Because in person, I have to watch myself. <laughs> Oh, true. Yeah, when we record in person, you can't delete either one of us. No, I can't silence myself. Oh, boy. Oh, nuts. (laughs) This is going to be a test for both of us, but that's all right. Uh, Do you have anything to share? Yeah, I had the funny story why I was like, wait, we have to record. Okay, yes. Okay, so when we were away, I think I told you that I found a few pairs of jeans that I loved. Yes. And I was obsessed. Is this one of them? So these are the ones that I bought just before I went away okay. that were like the inspo to expand my horizons. I understand. Okay. Also, if anyone here is clicking, it's my dog like corn on the cobbing a toy. Just ignore it. Um, but no, <laughs> we're like in the hustle and bustle of moving and packing and we're like getting an early start on the day and <laughs> Simon comes out of the shower and he like, he'll always take like his jeans and his socks and stuff like that into the bathroom and then come out and pick a t-shirt after. But he came walking out and I was like, huh. And I almost said to him, oh my God, those look like my jeans. We could be matching. Stop. No, he came out of the bathroom wearing my jeans. (laughs) (laughs) I was dying laughing. And the worst part is he kind of like looked down at them and was like, oh. Yeah, and like slowly took them off, but it was like, there was no shame in it or anything. He was just like, huh. He's like, should I be more, or he was like, should I be more upset or you be more upset that they fit both of us? And I was like, eh, I got nothing at this point. That's hilarious. But I just was like, he was walking straight towards me and in my head I was like, jeans like that like it didn't even hit me because the jeans were so new that like, i wasn't too, clearly used to, well they didn't look like they didn't fit they were just really really short because <laughs> they're like five sevenths lengths for anyone who wears lululemons like a good ankle cut and so on him who was like two three inches taller than me well three four maybe they were like real short like he was coming up millhouse they were floods <laughs> It was so funny, and that was the kind of the kicker. Is when I looked down and went, "Oh, you're like, Ooh, maybe those are my jeans." I can see way too much ankle and sock. <laughs> that's not right. That is a good story. It was so funny. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Oh, that boy. That is too good. Well, we just had a <laughs> finally like kind of slower weekend, which was nice. Like it's just been the so first busy. time ever for the first time in a while, anyways. But. 
feel like you've been busy since like April. It feels that way. It does feel that way, but I think it's slowed down a bit for like a couple months-ish. Not really. I hope so. I mean, the past month I've, we've made ourselves busy on the weekend. We've been renovating our Your backyard. Yard, yeah. and Which looks so good. It looks so good and it was super worth it, but that was like kind of self-induced pain. Like, we chose to do that. It's also funny because whenever I talk to you and you weren't out in the yard... Brandon still was. And every time I talk to you, you're like, oh, Brandon's going to do this. Brandon's going to do this. You're like, he just won't stop. Yeah, no, he didn't. But he that's wouldn't. like this one. If he is like, if we have a project and it's based in the yard, yeah, he just won't stop. Yeah, he, once he sets his mind to something, it's it's going to get done or he won't sleep Ooh. or stop Googling about it. Okay, that that's me. Yeah. Guilty. Yeah. But uh, before we start, we should remind everybody to follow us on Instagram, at Podcast by Proxy, Facebook, TikTok, TikTok, threads, threads Twitter, if you feel like like it. I still have Twitter on my X. phone. Uh, my phone says it's Twitter. I'm pretty sure. I'm, I, I think mine has the X symbol, but says Twitter. I'm going to look. Me too. Because I haven't, dele- I never deleted it because I don't actually open it. One in- Android, one Apple. Oh no, mine is I don't use X. it that often. Okay, well, mine says Twitter still, but perhaps I haven't updated the app because that's also something I would do. But yeah, mine still shows Twitter. They really fully changed it, hey? Yeah. Wow, I am not up at the times. No, you're not? No. Oh, I forgot that I got a new wallpaper and I just need to make that quick change. Okay, guess yeah, so when I open it in the app store, it does say X, and it says formerly Twitter, and then it asks me <laughs> to update the app. So anyway, uh, just follow us wherever it is that you social media, so just at X. Podcast by Proxy. Um, and if you're listening on Spotify or Apple, please, please leave a rating or review. Um, five star, of course, is preferred. Preferred. But preferred. Uh, but a rating and review on Spotify or Apple is helpful for us. I think that's everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun to be in person, but let's get into it. Because, yeah, we have a, a re- pretty a regular-sized episode, if you will. Um, Look, if we quit yammering right now, we did it in six minutes today. Whew. Let's do this. It's a, it's a good one. Okay. <laughs> Stupid. Okay. I started... Maybe we should just tell the listeners what just happened. Oh, and... uh, yeah. I started the episode, but in the middle of the script... So we've made it back to the top, and we're going to try again. I was wondering why it was very intense really fast. Yeah, really fast. Like, like really fast. What happened there? Nobody knows. Ooh. Okay. Well, I guess we're doing seven minutes. At approximately 10.30 a.m. on November 12, 2009, former Quebec Court of Appeal Judge Jacques Delisle phoned 911 from the condo he shared with his wife in Quebec City. He told emergency services that he had just arrived home and found his wife had taken her own life, finding her with a revolver next to her body. Officers arrived shortly after to find 71-year-old Mary Nicole Rainville dead on the couple's living room sofa with a 22 caliber Sterling handgun near her body on the floor. She had no pulse. An autopsy was performed on November 17, 2009, and it suggested that Mrs. Uh, Miss Rainville had injuries that physically she could have not self-inflicted. 71? Mm-hmm. Poor woman. Yeah, cause... I think he was a 77 at the time. Oh, my God. 76. Jeez. Yes. 
Mary Nicole Rainville and Jacques Delisle were married in 1960, and the couple had two children. They were married for nearly 50 years up until her death in November of 2009. In April of 2007, Mary Nicole suffered a devastating stroke that left her with a weak right leg and completely paralyzed her right arm. Aww. Yeah, and this was a really big... This was a really big change to her life. Like, her family considered the right side of her body fully immobilized. It was a huge change to her livelihood. Um, and she was required to use a wheelchair. And her family says that her spirits were, like, considerably lower following this incident um, in her life. And many people close to her claim to have heard her talk about suicide in the years prior to her death. I mean, I could see that if you're just like complete life has been flipped upside down. I could definitely see me in like a dark enough place to talk about it. Sure. And she, I think, felt a little bit from what I read, like a burden to her family having to be taken care of. She had a lot of physical care needs. All of a sudden. Exactly. In July of 2009, Marie Nicole suffered another setback when she broke her hip. Um, She suffered a hip fracture and underwent an operation and physiotherapy. Toward the end of her hospital stay, Marie Nicole was able to get up by herself with some support and get around with the help of a walker. Her caregivers at the time suggested that she go into an assisted living facility, but ultimately she decided to return home with Mr. DeLille. So wait, she has... Her one right side is bad because of her stroke, and she broke the left? Correct. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. This poor woman. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm so shocked at the, just like... Yeah, I think it was her left hip that she broke. I don't know that I actually have that information, but... um, um, So, it seems at this point, she was able to get up with the help of a walker, like, after her surgery and her physiotherapy, and I think because it had been a couple years since her stroke that she maybe had gained some of that mobility back, um, but still considered... Unmobile? Sure, yes. Immobile, mostly. I think she's needs assistance. Yes, absolutely. And that's why her caregivers saw that, too. Okay. On October 31st, 2009, just nine days before her death, Marie Nicole left the hospital and returned home to the condo she shared with Mr. DeLille. Jacques DeLille was born in Montreal in 1935. He obtained his law degree at the age of 22 from Laval University and was a senior partner by close to the 1960s. He was first appointed to the Quebec Superior Court in 1983 and moved to the Court of Appeal in 1992. In the year 2000, he became a supernumerary judge, which just means that he retired from working full-time but continued to work part-time. He's like an on-call judge? Essentially, yeah. He wasn't a full-time member of the judiciary, but he took cases part-time kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. He held this position until he retired in 2009. One of Mr. DeLille's most high-profile cases was that of Michelle Valencourt, who was convicted of murder in 1995 for shooting her abusive husband while he slept. 
Mr. DeLille was among the panel of judges that overturned her sentence on appeal, stating that she had good reason to believe her husband would kill her and saw murder as the only way out. When Mr. DeLille stepped down from the bench in the spring of 2009, some say reluctantly, he told his colleagues that he was leaving to care for his wife full time. Hmm. When police arrived at the posh apartment that Mr. DeLille shared with his wife, Marie Nicole, in the upscale district of Sillery in Quebec City, they asked him to wait at the door while they went inside to examine the scene. Okay. They entered to find her body um, on the couch, a gunshot wound to the temple. She was lying on her back with her head resting on a pillow that was bloodstained and tilted slightly to the right um, toward the back of the sofa. So you can kind of picture that. Yeah. And do we know if she's left or right-handed? Uh, we'll kind of get into it. We don't know okay. if she's left or right-handed, but we know of her abilities with her right side. So she kind of oh, like yeah. so had to be left-handed left yeah. um, because of her limited abilities with her right arm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, for, I forgot about that for a second. Well, the sofa also had blood on it, and her right arm was folded over her chest, and her hand kind of like curled up. The left arm was hanging off the side of the sofa, and a twenty-two caliber Sterling handgun on the floor underneath it. Okay, which I mean, you can kind of picture because I you yeah. can picture when people have like muscle atrophy, the hand kind of yeah claws or turns in. Absolutely, so, yeah. totally makes sense. Okay. Ambulance attendants were sent to the scene and took Marie Nicole's vital signs and observed that she had no pulse and was not breathing. Uh, Mr. DeLille asked them multiple times not to perform CPR on his wife out of respect for her wishes. Like she had, but in her will, did she have an NDR? Like a do not I, resuscitate? I don't. There's no DNR, information I mean? about that, but no, I don't think so. An a, NDR. A DNR, yeah. disclosure. <laughs> uh, no, I think that that at this point um he's just next of kin making a request sort of yeah okay. like almost in like a mercy way i want to say like well i mean cpr on someone when you're trying to do life-saving measures is very intense mm -hmm. so i get it delil told officers on scene that his wife had shot herself in the head and that her right side was paralyzed because of a stroke he also told them that he was a retired judge and confided in them about how difficult it was to take care of somebody who was not fully autonomous. He also told Weird. police, yeah, he also told police that around 9 a.m. that morning, he and his wife had argued and he had said, will all this never end? After that, at around 9.30 a.m., he says he left the apartment and went to the Rosette grocery store. He returned at 10.30 a.m., and this is when he says he found Marie Nicole's body, and he then says he removed the mag from the gun to secure it and avoid any possibility of it firing accidentally because they found the gun mag on the ground. So they were like, well, how did... So that would... Exp I mean, I don't want to... Like, spoiler alert this, but, like, so, okay, his fingerprints are on the gun. He's falling back on the, like, she feels like a burden. Like, this just seems like he's trying to lay too much groundwork for, like, a very first interaction. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so they ask him about the gun. 
Like, whose is it? Where did it come from? Does this belong to you? Is it in your home? Yeah. And Dalil says that it was his and that he had been given it as a gift from a friend when they were hunting geese on an island in the St. Lawrence River. Um, This part to me is just kind of odd. guns is weird. And like reckless as a judge. He says he kept it in his office at the courthouse. Loaded. In like a cabinet for many years. And that when he retired, he put it back in the box, carried it home, and placed it on the table at the front door where it had been up until that morning. Whoa. Yeah. No. Yeah. He then admits that he does not hold a license or a certificate to carry and that the gun's not registered. Okay, so as someone who has my restricted and unrestricted licenses... For handguns specifically, there's so many more rules, especially, like, just common sense not having it loaded, but also just, like, the liability on it and, like, being able to even just, like, move it from one place to another. So he's saying that it was just loaded in a box on a table by the front door. I just picture, like, a shoebox. For, like, a month or two, basically, and that before that, it was just in a cabinet at the courthouse. Unregistered, no license to carry. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, he explained he had intended to get rid of the gun and give it to police, um, but that it had just sat in its case in the apartment entranceway for years, and he never did, or months, or however long he had been home at that point. I think it was only months. Think of all the people that passed through a courthouse. Yeah. And not even the type of person, just the volume of person. It's just like really reckless behavior for a judge, for a a member of the Canadian judiciary. It's like, you know better. You know that that's not supposed to be right. If that is what happened with this gun, like it just seems... Yeah, just what we have perception-wise with the little information we have, just everything seems like not okay. Yeah, it's like, why why would you even admit that? That is like not a good look for you. Um, so yeah, Mr. DeLeal then phones his daughter at the suggestion of a police officer and told her there had been a tragedy and that her mother had taken her own life. Um, so Jacques DeLeal and Marie Nicole Rainville had two children, um, a son and a daughter at this point. They're adults, of course. Uh, so he was then, Jacques DeLeal was then driven to the hospital by police where at 11.42 a.m. the attending physician informed him that Marie Nicole was dead um, and her death was initially listed as a suicide or initially, that's like what it was first thought to be. Yeah, I mean, that's what he said it was when cops walked in, but he can't really argue that. I get why it was labeled that to begin with. Yep. So two investigators meet with Mr. Delille and their two children and their spouses, so their two children's spouses, in a hospital room. One of the investigators informs Mr. Delille that he could not return to his apartment for the moment because police officers were carrying out tests there. They were doing investigation. Mr. Delille responds that nobody could stop him from returning to his home and that he refused <laughs> to have any tests carried out in his absence. It's not really your option when there's believed to be foul play. And Yep. What? Yeah, and so when they warned him that he could face charges if he obstructed the work of the police officers, Mr. Delille told an investigator, quote, I know what you're thinking, but I did not kill her, end quote. 
And like of all people, he should know the law. Yep. Which is more frustrating. Yeah, this these interactions um, are definitely interesting. And later he will try to make them less interesting. Correct. Yes, <laughs> basically. <laughs> yeah, that will be less <laughs> ominous in a little bit. Both investigators claimed to be, like, very surprised by his demeanor when they were interacting with him. Um, well, I'm kind of shocked by that, like, no, you can't look in my house. Like, A, as a judge, and B, as this supposed worried husband of this wife that just killed herself. Like, you should want to let them in your home. You should know the proceedings mm-hmm. in this type of situation. Yeah. Um, so Mr. Delisle then calls the investigator back in the afternoon and authorizes them to search his apartment <laughs> in his presence as if it wasn't going to happen either way. Watch, they're already like four hours into searching it. Yeah. <laughs> Mary Nicole Rainville's autopsy was performed on November 17th, 2009 by Dr. Andre Bourgeau, uh, who is a forensic pathology specialist. Uh, Dr. Bourgeau noted the entry wound to the left temporal area of the head and stated the appearance of both the wound and the fracture to the cranium suggested the tip of the barrel was either touching or very close to her head when the firearm was discharged. He also noted there was no exit wound um, and that an x-ray revealed the bullet was lodged in the back right corner of Miss Rainville's head. And this to him meant that the projectile traveled in a horizontal trajectory from like the front left to the back right. Which is kind of weird because the, to get a gun perfectly straight beside your head, it actually is kind of difficult. Mm-hmm. especially holding it out here. Like, usually it's a bit of an upward angle when someone shoots themselves. Mm-hmm. That's why, and it's not to sound gory or horrific and a bit of a trigger warning here, but that's why you usually see a lot of damage to, like, the back of the skull or, like, the back corner is because I feel like there's usually, I don't know, there's just so many weird things to this. So, yeah, well, it was found, right? The bullet was found in the back right corner, but there was no exit wound, mm-hmm. so that's... It just seems weird that it's perfectly horizontal and not angled up to me. Sure. So keep that in mind. Okay. Um, Dr. Bourgeau also noted black smoke residue in the front part of Miss Rainville's palm, like on her hand, uh, which was observed by the crime scene technician on scene as well as just being sort of odd. And they both had kind of like... um, experience with ballistics and just weren't able to recreate it or like understand how that could have happened it's how Um, i don't know if you want me to keep giving you my theories or you want me to keep my mouth shut no just just hold them for now um dr bourgeau also noted a second deposit of black smoke residue near her left thumb that was smaller and less noticeable than the first Um, He contacted Gilbert Gravel, who was a ballistics expert working in the same laboratory. And when he was told that Miss Rainville's right hand was paralyzed, Mr. Gravel attempted to reproduce a position consistent with suicide that would have left similar traces on the left hand like that. And he came to the conclusion that the wound could not have been self-inflicted. This is his theory. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. Am I surprised? Uh, no. Katie's not surprised. Uh, so seven months later, on June 15th, 2010... 75-year-old Jacques Delisle was arrested in his home for the first-degree murder of his wife, Marie-Nicole Rainville. Good. Uh, This is believed to be the first time a Canadian judge has ever faced a charge like this. And he, of course, also faced charges of illegal possession of a weapon. Jacques Delisle pled not guilty to both charges. Of course he did. Delisle's attorney applied to have separate trials for each of the offenses. So one trial for the first degree murder and one trial for the weapon charge. Um, The court granted this application. And the reason for this decision was mainly that the judge found it imperative that the jury focus its attention on the rationale and objective analysis of the murder charge. Um, the judge figured that the gun possession charge was a lot more cut and dry and would just kind of add like noise. It would just like noise. dilute. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I totally get what they're saying. Add noise to the trial and like the murder charge was really important. So they did make the decision to hold them separately. I mean, I get it. I mean, if anything, you may even dismiss, dismiss the firearms charge depending on the sentence of one. Perhaps. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure that that was presented as part of a, a plea deal, but mm-hmm. he did not accept. Oh, I wouldn't think he would, knowing no. the, the system the way he does. I think he'd try to work it. Absolutely. Work and we'll, we work. will see that. We will see that throughout the rest of this case, that like having that inside knowledge and experience with the system really played into what you'll he did. see things happen here that I like you don't see very often from people. So. The trial against Jacques Delisle for the first-degree murder of his wife, Marie-Nicole Rainville, began in May of 2012 and was presided over by Justice Claude C. Gagnon. The arrest of Jacques Delisle stunned the legal community and made it a pretty difficult task for them to find a judge and a prosecutor who didn't know him. Like, mm-hmm. rendering a failed fair trial in this case was A, incredibly important, and B, incredibly difficult to find I think the right it's people. important to note, too, like, as someone whose parent was, like, in courtrooms in Canadian court, she knows judges' names all across Canada. Mm-hmm. So it, I can totally agree with how hard that would be because it's yeah. not even like you can be like, beep, boop, boop, hey, Alberta. You're a little ways away. And they're like, sorry, we, that would not be a neutral party still. Like, yeah. it would be so hard. Well, and he had been, he was in the justice system working for decades. Like 40 years at that point yeah, or something? Basically. 30 years, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was difficult uh, to do. Delisle's friend and fellow retired judge Bernard Grenier was quoted saying it's a challenge for the system it's a challenge for the jurors it's a challenge for the judge it's a judge presiding over the trial of another judge but that's our system justice delisle is a person charged with an offense and not first and foremost a judge at a bail hearing in 2010 for mr delisle justice gagnon stated he had quote no memory of any social event i might have attended with him and i don't know any member of his family so that's why he was chosen. Jacques. I guess that's better than nothing. 
Yeah. Well, it's not better than nothing. Nothing would be better, I guess, in this circumstance. But yeah, I mean, it's not really noted if he worked with him either. It just says that he has no memory of like ever interacting with him, doesn't know his family. So I, I feel that's fair. Yeah, same. Uh, Jacques Delisle was represented by defense attorney Jacques La Rochelle, uh, who is known for having represented Hell's Angels alleged leader Maurice, uh, quote, mom, Boucher. A few days before the trial, Mr. Delisle objected to having his out-of-court statements to police officers and evidence of his demeanor toward them filed into evidence. So this is when I was like, we'll come back to this. So he, this is when I was saying that he's going to try and make important things not important. Uh, He tries to, yeah, basically have his entire like demeanor toward the cops when they were doing their investigation taken out of evidence. So he wants like almost that whole interaction removed. Correct. Not shown to the jury at all. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. In a judgment rendered on May 4th, 2012, the judge dismissed his arguments uh, respecting the admissibility of these statements, except for, like, certain statements that were protected by his right to silence, just, like, the regular stuff. But otherwise, it was pretty much a hard no. The judge also decided to admit the evidence showing that Mr. Delisle's demeanor changed the moment he met with investigators. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, they definitely said no to that. (laughs) wow this is ballsy though oh yeah and that's why i was like you'll see him kind of do things that you don't normally see because he has so much knowledge of he knows where he can push certain boundaries almost absolutely yeah how frustrating the, so the court, the jury heard the 911 call of Delisle calling the morning of his wife's death, telling the officer, uh, operator, sorry, he came home and found her unresponsive with a revolver lying beside her. Um, on the call, he's like breathing quite heavily and says, my wife killed herself. There's a revolver next to her. Um, on the call, he tells the officer, uh, operator, goodness, I, why can't I do that? Eh. Words are tough some days. On the call, he told the operator his wife had been paralyzed on her right side following a stroke. And when the operator asked if Marie Nicole had previously talked about taking her life, Delisle's response on the 911 call to the operator was, quote, it's a long story. Oh, okay. Not really. She's felt like a bit of a burden since the stroke. And yes, it has crossed her mind. Yeah. It's a long story, though. The Crown stated that they planned to prove ballistic testing showed that Marie Nicole would not have been able to shoot herself due to her physical impairments and that the gunshot residue found on her left hand could not have been there if she was holding the gun. Delisle was seen crying while speaking to the... Oh, sorry, while listening to the testimony about his wife's physical challenges, including the uh, loss of the ability to speak foreign languages, play bridge, and do puzzles because of her brain damage. Oh, God. Yeah, I work with someone whose parent recently had a stroke like a year ago, and it's shocking the change in their overall just demeanor and characteristics and personality. It's just, it really does affect every, like, every part of your life a little bit, and sometimes others significantly. The Crown during the trial alleged that the black spot of gun residue on uh, Marie Nicole's 
left hand happened as she tried to defend herself. Um, and the defense insisted it came from the awkward grip that she had on the gun. See, I thought it sounded like it was maybe like someone shot her while she was like having a nap or something and then fed the gun into her hand. So the soot from the end got on her hand. That was what I found. That's a very interesting theory because it would explain a little bit more the thumb mark. Um, Especially if you think like if your hand's laying down already, your thumb kind of closes over naturally Mm -hmm. when you're relaxed. I don't know. That was immediately what popped into my head. No, that's interesting. Comment on the post on Instagram what you think. The post on Instagram. That doesn't exist. Comment on any post. I'm going to catch that up in the next week. It's on my list. I'm just going to post like 10 at a time. I just threw you under the bus and accidentally made you do it. So You did. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> uh, a municipal police investigator testified to the residue stating that, um, stating that the abnormal black smoke stain in the palm of her hand was just like a strange location for gunshot residue and also testified that the choice of suicide method to him was suspicious as he had never seen a woman kill herself with a revolver or like with a gun of all his years on the force um it's usually like overdose or something like that slitting slitting their wrists Mm -hmm. Um, the most common method for females is like poison um mm -hmm. Anyway, so that was just something that stuck out to him as kind of odd, um, because it's quite rare. It is odd. Yeah. Now, in an attempt to establish motive, because Mm -hmm. for a first-degree murder charge, there has to be motive, right? Uh Uh-huh. Sure does. Has to be intentional. It has to be intentional. What is the motive here? The Crown Prosecution calls Mr. Delisle's Former secretary, Johan Plamondon, to the stand. Johan testifies that she and Mr. Delisle had been having an affair for two years. What? Two years? Before she told her husband she was moving in with him in June of 2010. A few days later... Like, literally the day after she told her husband that she was going to move in with Mr. Delisle, he was arrested for the murder of his wife. Ooh. Could you imagine if she was like, so, change in plan. My new place fell through. She did. And she stayed. It seems like they were having tr- problems for a while. And I don't think that she kind of like fully disclosed that relationship. More just that like he would take her in and she could live there. Okay. And so she was able to quite quickly be like, never mind. Um, but oh my she gosh. testified on stand that they were having a whole ass affair. <laughs> Johan testified that after Miss Rainville died in November of 2009, Jacques Delisle told her that she had killed herself, but also suggested that the couple cool things off for a while as there would be a police investigation. Well, if it was cut and dry that she had actually committed suicide, no, there likely wouldn't be, sir. Mm-hmm. I mean, there might still be, but still Not the fact that, extent. like, that's just shady. Yep. Uh, Johan Plamadon began working for Jacques Delisle as a legal secretary in 1983 when he was named to the Quebec Superior Court. She followed him when he was appointed to the Quebec Court of Appeal in 1992 Um, She said they got along, and over time, he became somebody that she considered a friend. 
Johan testified that a few months before Marie Nicole suffered a stroke in April of 2007, their friendship basically evolved into something more. So a few months before the stroke in April of 2007 is when they kind of started up an affair. Okay, so the canoodling was happening before... Before. Okay. And was he going to tell her and... You know what? Men always say, oh, I was going to tell her. So I don't even know if I believe him anyway. I mean, the crown theory, and we'll get into it, is that it was financially motivated because he wanted to basically live and gallivant around with his... Legal secretary who was like 20 years younger and didn't want to have to pay out his wife divorce. So instead he wanted to take his dead wife money to support his new wife. Essentially. But we'll get into it. We'll get into their theory. Okay. Um... So throughout the years of caring for his wife and even after her death, Mr. Delisle and Johan maintained an intimate relationship and she kept this secret from her own husband who she had been married to for 34 years. Well, these are long relationships getting destroyed. 35 year marriage, over 50 year marriage. Yeah. Oy vey. Johan Plamadon was 57 years old at the time of the trial in 2012. Um, she was visibly uncomfortable as she had to describe details of this like secret love affair she had with him. Well, yeah. Uh, she explained that often Mr. Delisle would pick her up at the public library parking garage. Um, so she explained to the jury that often Mr. Delisle would pick her up at the public library parking garage and drive her to the courthouse. And this is like when they would use a few precious minutes alone to chat. And oh, my God. Kiss. Yeah. Our stolen moments together. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. At times, she said she would take afternoons off work to spend time with Mr. Delisle. um, And she thought, or this is, she said she thought, that the affair would end after he retired, uh, but it didn't. Miss Plamondon explained that her private life was in shambles and that she was ill, um, stating, quote, I was going through a depression. Following his wife's death, Mr. Delisle urged her to move in with him. And this was a decision that she found difficult to make. So it was after his wife passed away that she asked Johan to move in with him. Delisle told her that he sought a different life and that he wanted to travel and spoke of going on a cruise that summer together. Why? So we could push her overboard? It's just like, man, just give it like five minutes. After your wife passes away to start making future plans with your mistress. Can you at least just let the police investigation be done? Like, holy shit. Also, whether he did it or not, it's just like, that's... Just tells me everything I need to know. Yeah. Speaking of, though, the show Cruise Ship Killers on Amazon is mildly entertaining if anybody wants to watch it. Good to know. Yeah. So when Johan finally mustered up the courage to tell her husband that she was leaving him for Mr. Delisle, uh, that is when he's charged the very next day with murder. Oh, okay. She did testify, like I said, that she didn't tell her husband everything 
um, just that Mr. Delisle would take her in and said after he was arrested that she never left the home with her husband. So she still lives there. Or okay. at the time of the trial, she still lived there. Okay. Fair. On cross-examination, defense lawyer Jacques LaRochelle asked Miss Plamondon a single question. Um, did Mr. Delisle tell you that if you said no to his offer, that he would accept it and never raise the issue again? So his offer of moving in with him? Yeah. Miss Plamondon responded yes, and this ended her testimony. So hmm. she said that, I guess, he... He said, like, if you say no, then that's fine and I'll never ask you again. And she said yes. That's kind of a weird reason or, like, question, I mean, and then just to end her testimony. Yeah, it's the only question that the defense asked her. It feels weird. Like, a bit. And also, there was no time given to ask if that was actually true that he followed through on those actions. And, like, what does that prove? Because normally if the defense is only going to ask a witness one question like that and close it, it's, like, to prove a point. And I just don't know what point that proves. Maybe they're just trying to prove that it wasn't because, like, they had anything else going on. Sure. Like, like it was purely to help, and it was just, like, a one-time offer, and then, like, okay. Or it wasn't as serious as the Crown is yeah. making it out to be kind of thing. Yeah. Sure. The Crown also called a notary to the stand to testify on the financial consequences of a divorce between Mr. DeLille and Miss Rainville. So this is when I was talking about kind of, like, the... Like what he'd have to pay out sure. if he was to divorce her kind of thing. Yeah. The notary explained that Mr. DeLille would have had to pay $1,402,901 to Marie Nicole in the event of a divorce because of the division of property and assets. Instead, when Marie Nicole died, Mr. DeLille assumed all of the couple's assets as the result of a what's called gift in contemplation of death that was made in their marriage contract. So, so basically if one outlives the other, they just take over assume everything. All the property as their own. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Marina Cole's sister Pauline also testified at the trial. She stated that her sister had expressed suicidal thoughts to her in correspondence in the month after she had a stroke. So that was back in like April 2007. That's a while, yeah. She also said her sister feared being a burden on her family after her broken hip because of her limited mobility. Uh, she said she had limited contact with her sister specifically because she didn't like being around Alil. Wow. Yeah. Paula Rainville also said she did not approve of the care provided by Delil and didn't think her sister was ready to be discharged from the hospital after her hip therapy because she was weak and thin. And again, she just didn't think that he took a very good care of her. She had wanted her to go into a nursing home instead of returning to their condo, but uh, Marie Nicole had reluctantly agreed to go home. Marie Joseph, Marie Josie Tremblay, who carried, uh, sorry, who cared for Marie Nicole in the hospital, said she found her combative and sometimes sad and tired, but never depressed. Hmm. Those aren't very nice characteristics for a 71-year-old, but although she's just had a rough go and she's probably really uncomfortable and miserable. I was going to say, I think she was really struggling and she, you know, and I think that that's what makes this case hard is that there is an argument for the suicide theory. It's not like 
wild and out of left field. No. Um, I mean, medically assisted suicide is a thing for a reason where mm-hmm. people feel like. Yeah. And I think it's it's unfortunate to say, but people do feel like a burden mm-hmm. or they're so uncomfortable in their own skin now because they don't have the mobility or yeah, their quality of life. Any just, number of yeah. things is just um, I mean, there's a, a process for that. <laughs> and, you know, if he if he did help or something, it's like there is a legal process for yeah. that. I don't think there actually was in 2009 at the time that this occurred. Actually, no. I know for a fact there that there wasn't. Um, because I was in school after that and maid wasn't a thing when I was in university, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard one for sure because he does all these things that you're like, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's shady, but it's not like the suicide theory is completely wildly out of left field. No. Which I think makes it a bit difficult. It's very hard with the reasonable doubt reasonable doubt piece yes. of a case mm-hmm. to not wonder if maybe just maybe she could have committed suicide. Mm-hmm. And right now, like the the main thing that's saying she didn't is the ballistics um, testimony, like the ballistics review, um, which you can argue is subjective. Mm-hmm. You know. I think that probably both sides did provide their own ballistics report, but it's like any number of people could look at that and probably tell you something different. That's not yeah, like break even. Yeah, that's not like nail in the coffin, you no. know, signed, sealed, delivered. Anyways. Well, and he touched the gun, so it's not really like fingerprints are mm-hmm. going to be a done deal. Yeah, he admitted to touching the gun. Which could also put gunpowder residue or gunshot residue on his hand. Like... He's kind of put himself in a position where reasonable doubt is highly feasible. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jacques Delisle did not testify at this trial, which wow. is not shocking. It's a smart move, and he's a judge. It is a smart move. I just... Actually, we're just... Side note. We were watching... So the Murdoch Murders has a part two on Netflix now, a three three episode part two surrounding the trial and we watched that and I've seen Alec Murdaugh's testimony before and just been like oh my god he's a fumbling idiot that one it's so awful but watching it again on this documentary with like all of the other context and things that they show you on the documentary that the jury saw is just like you can see the moment in that trial where he knows he's fucked and that he's been found. Like, you can see... Like, the face just changes. Literally the and... moment it happens. And Ooh, I need to watch that. After watching, I do not believe for... F- I think the jury got it right, is what I'm going to say. Because I know he's appealing his guilty uh, verdict. But it's... Watch that still... and tell me that you think there's any fucking chance that he didn't kill them. Oh, I already don't... Yeah. I, yeah. Wild. Anyway. Can't wait to watch it. On June 14th, 2012, former Quebec Court of Appeal Justice Jacques Delisle was found guilty of first-degree murder for killing his wife. Mm-hmm. It took an eight-man and four-woman jury three days of deliberation to return this verdict. Um, so three days is, is a good amount of time, I would say, for a jury to have deliberated. They, yeah. It I- clearly wasn't cut and dry for them either. 
No, and again, with the amount of reasonable doubt, I think, yeah, mm-hmm. multiple days of deliberation is worth it. Yeah. When the guilty verdict was read, Delisle buried his face in his hands and slammed his fist into the table, saying, for God's sake, no. Um, over in the public gallery, his son was seen, like, really angrily removing his jacket and started to unbuckle his belt before being told by the court constables to throw calm fists? down. I don't know. I didn't understand that. But maybe he's just upset and that's what he was doing. Um, we all react to bad news like differently. Like overheating? Sure. Maybe. I have no idea, but he was told to calm the heck down and put his belt back on. The fact that he was told to calm down specifically makes me feel like he was going to start to just like mosh pit rage that courtroom. With a belt. Yeah. Yikes. Okay. I mean, again, like that's earth shattering news. And like his dad at this point is like 80 years old. So I'm sure he believes his dad didn't do it. And that's super, super upsetting. I, I'm, I, I don't know. I don't know how as a child of someone whose one parent has killed their other that you can't just try and be in denial and not lose both your parents in an instant. Absolutely. I just, I don't know how you don't. So yeah, no. good on him, whatever yeah. his process is to grieving here. But I hope he gets the help he needs. Mm-hmm. Um, so he begged for a chance to hug his father before he was taken away and the request was declined. Ooh. Yeah. Jacques Delisle received a life sentence without the possibility of parole for 25 years. Um, he maintains his wife was in poor health and that her death was the result of a tragic suicide. Delisle appealed the guilty verdict. Um, his lawyer argued that there were many procedural errors that led to the guilty decision. After filing the appeal, he also filed a request to be released pending the decision of the appeal, which was rejected. Good. On May 29th, 2013, in a 41-page ruling, the Quebec Court of Appeal announced it was dismissing the appeal. The court stated the former judge failed to show that the verdict was unreasonable, saying in the ruling, quote, the guilty verdict for murder is one that a jury acting judicially could reasonably render, going on to say, quote, there was sufficient evidence to justify a conviction. Yes. The Crown argued that he killed his wife, Marie Nicole, because he wanted to avoid a costly divorce and move in with with Miss Plamondon. Uh, so after his appeal is rejected, on March 19th, 2015, Mr. Delisle makes a request for review by the Minister of Justice for a miscarriage of justice. So he is asking... In what context? He is asking the Minister of Justice to review the... Um, to review the trial and stating that there's a miss... I can't speak right now. Hold on. Give me a minute. Okay. Ah! He is asking the Minister of Justice to review the case, stating basically a miscarriage of justice has occurred during the trial with all these procedural errors. And basically, they say that they have evidence that was not in the original trial that could change the decision and so what they ask is and this at this point is that the minister of justice review it to determine if a miscarriage of justice has occurred and if so then potentially a new trial would be ordered no right 
So around the exact same time this happens, the Fifth Estate does an independent investigation into the case and releases a documentary on March 20th, 2015, which reveals this evidence that was not shown in the original trial. Um, So we are going to actually stop the episode here and Katie and I are going to go watch this fifth estate documentary together you can find it on youtube i will link it in the like show notes of this episode i think everybody should go watch this um it's called jacques delisle murder and the judge the fifth estate it's on the cbc news youtube channel from march 20th 2015 anyways we're gonna watch that and then our part two episode is gonna kind of be discussing all the things that have happened with this case since then um, because there's been a lot up until literally this month. There's that is news. crazy. Mm-hmm. So this case is like still ongoing. It's still happening. And so yeah, we're going to go watch this documentary together. So is everybody else. And then in like two days, we will reconvene with everybody. for a few days. And we will, I will, I will drop a lot more information on everyone. And we will also discuss it again. So part two might be a shorter episode um, than this one, but I just thought it would be fun to split it up and give everyone some documentary homework and then come back. a little true crime homework. Right? It's the only kind I do like. Yeah. So that's where we're at with this one. Um, it's, it's, I mean, it's tragic either way. And like I said before, I think it's it's a difficult case for me because I'm a, I'm a believer in reasonable doubt. And mm-hmm. there was a lot of it. Yeah, this one's not as cut and dry to me as I would like it to be, I guess. Have you already watched The Fifth Estate? I have not. Okay, good. No, that but I mean, my... I have all the research. Like, I know what's in the documentary. I oh, just, I haven't actually okay, watched okay. the documentary. It's okay. It'll be juicy and dramatic in yeah, the documentary. There, there's probably things in there I, I don't know, but I have most of the, the general gist of the information, yes. Mm, I needed to. I'm very it. excited. Anyway, so uh, don't forget to follow us on social media. Follow us on wherever you're listening. Apple and Spotify are kind of like the big two. Rate, uh, review, share. Rate, review, share these episodes. I am going to dump a whole bunch of posts on Instagram in the next week, and I'm going to be sharing them all in their stories with like any links to episodes you might have missed because I'm being really bad about posting on um, social media. But we're getting there. Thank you for being here. We'll see you in a few days. Go do your homework. Yeah, go do your homework. <laughs> Bye. Bye. I'll call you soon. Okay. Okay. Bye. 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 How do I stop this shit? I'll stop it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fuck me.